From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Think of it very basically as my emotions are all in this room we call our hearts. And if I close the door to it because I don't want to feel my pain, then I will close the door to my joy and I will close the door to my happiness. And therefore, I am going to be shutting off so much of the richness and fulfillment in my life. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to be speaking with Ron Greer. He's the director of the Pastoral Counseling Service at Peachtree Road United Methodist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. He's been with this ministry for 40 years. Reverend Greer is an ordained United Methodist minister, a fellow of the American Association of Pastoral Counselors, and a clinical fellow of the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. He's the author of four books, The Path of Compassion, Living with Heart, Soul, and Mind, Now That They Are Grown, Successfully Parenting Your Adult Children, Markings on the Windowsill, a book about grief that's really about hope, and If You Know Who You Are, You'll Know What to Do, Living with Integrity. Today we're talking about his most recent book, The Quiet House, Reflections on the Loss of a Spouse. And just here at the top of the conversation, for anyone listening, I want to flag that we will be talking about death loss, and grief in very frank ways in this conversation. So if that's not a a conversation that you're ready to hear, I would encourage you to practice some self-care and maybe listen to this show a little later. With that, I want to get into the conversation and welcome you, Reverend Ronald J. Greer. Thank you for being here with us on Things Not Seen. I am glad to be with you and thank you for the invitation. So longtime listeners of my show will know that I have a habit. I tend to start my conversations by saying, well, let's start in a bit of an odd place, and I'll take them back to a little vignette or something from a story or when they were in a sort of transitional moment. But it struck me as I was preparing for this conversation that the entirety of what we are talking about loss of a loved one, grief, and mourning, that could be defined completely and totally as an odd place par excellence. And so acknowledging that we are starting already in an odd place, I would like to ask you if you could say for my listeners, as you are standing in the midst of your own grief and mourning at the loss of your wife of 40 years, Karen, What does grief look like for you today? What does mourning look like for you today? Let's start there, and then we can begin to build and bring in some pieces and some details. You take me back, David, to why I wrote the book. Karen died over three years ago, and about a year and a half into this journey after her death, I realized the transition that I was making emotionally. And with that transition, I said, 
I have the advantage, as you said, I've been a minister for 50 years, a pastoral counselor for 40 of those. And I have the advantage of knowing about grief. I also, my wife and I, 40 years ago, had the death of our son. And so I've had experience, a deep personal experience with grief. So I know the terrain. And when Karen died, one of the advantages I had because of my ministry, because of my vocation, I knew how to engage it. Now, I had to put on, as they say, my big boy britches, and I had to have the courage to engage it. But I knew how to do it, and I did. And a year and a half ago, I began to sense that transition, that the grief that I was expressing, and we'll get into later, I'm sure, the difference between grief and mourning, and how I was mourning the loss, how I was responding to my grief with intentional mourning and how the healing was beginning to happen. Now, specifically back to your question, I'm moving forward with my life. As I have said, I had a great life and now I have a good life. And so often I find, and it was certainly true for me earlier, after losing someone who was so phenomenally important to me in my life in enriching my life in countless ways, I lost sight of the uh, temporarily of the wonderful life I still had. And uh, I think of the way Tennyson said it, though much is taken, much abides. And then as the healing happened, I realized, oh, I still have, I had a great life. I still have a good one. I have all of these wonderful blessings in which I can build. So I have mourned and I will continue to because this loss goes on and on. and. I have also healed. And so I am now engaged in with new purposes and new meanings and new sources of fulfillment throughout my life. I have a good life as I'm moving forward. I wanted to share something of that journey with others, not that their journey was going to duplicate mine at all, because it, all of our paths are unique, but they could discover their own and we could be sisters and brothers on this path. You used a term a moment ago that I want to circle back to. You described yourself as a pastoral counselor and a minister. And I think for my listeners, maybe there might be some confusion there. They may assume that all ministers are pastoral counselors, or they may assume that pastoral counseling is just a fancy word for ministry. But there's a real distinction there that I'd like to highlight. So when you talk about your work as a pastoral counselor, can you give us a brief overview of what that skill set involves? Right. Thank you. A pastor does counsel. A pastoral counselor is someone who has gone, who has their usually master of divinity degree and is already a pastor and goes back to graduate school to get another graduate degree in pastoral counseling. So I was doing counseling as a pastor. Now I'm doing counseling both as a pastor and as a therapist. So credential-wise, I'm credentialed as a pastoral counselor and as a marriage and family therapist, but it's a pastor who specializes in counseling. Thank you for asking. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Reverend Ronald J. Greer. He's the director of the Pastoral Counseling Service at Peachtree Road United Methodist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. He's been in this ministry for 40 years. He's an ordained United Methodist minister and a fellow of the American Association of Pastoral Counselors. He's the author of several books, and today we're talking about his most recent book, The Quiet House, Reflections on the Loss of a Spouse. 
I'd like to stay for a moment with this idea of being a pastoral counselor and lift up something that you say in your book, The Quiet House. You mention that as a pastoral counselor, you say that you are trained in grief and you know something of the ways to mourn that can bring healing. Knowing how we best grieve is a major plus for all of us as we enter the darkness. And I guess I want to stick with that for a moment and ask you, so as a pastoral counselor, were you trained to anticipate some of the things that you experienced both in the loss of your two-year-old son 40 years ago, but then also with the loss of your wife Karen three years ago? Help us understand that as listeners and as outsiders to this grief. How did your pastoral counseling training aid you as you were moving through this process of grieving? Let me resonate with what you just said, David, and then build on it. Yes, I did anticipate what was coming. Now, did I anticipate the specifics of what happened? Of course not. But did I anticipate broad brush what this journey would be like? Yes, I did anticipate it. The specifics always are unique and will take us by surprise. But yes, I did indeed anticipate so much of that. And secondly, I had a good sense of how to respond to it. The thing that I always go back to is that the word grief comes from the Latin gravis that means heavy. And good gracious, how perfect is that? That is exactly, no surprise here, gravis is also the root word for our English word gravity. Do we feel the weight, we feel the burden of the grief. The saying is where there was deep grief, there was great love. And when there is great love, we're going to feel the weight of that. Then when we feel the blow of the grief, when we feel the weight of that loss, then we have got to do something with it. We can't plow it. Well, we can plow it under. It is so unhealthy to plow it under. David, may, may I go ahead and make that distinction between grief and mourning? Yes, that would be wonderful. Thank you. It's so important. Grief and mourning are often used synonymously. They're very similar and they're connected with each other, but they're not the same thing. Grief is the emotional blow that we receive when we have any major loss in our lives. The emotion that we feel is grief. That is the gravis. That is the heavy that hits us. Then we choose what we're going to do with it. And some people will plow it under as soon as quickly as they can. They will repress it. They will try to deny it as quickly as they can because grief hurts. And I certainly understand that, but I don't respect it but for, for the person because I'm pulling for them and it's not healthy. Mourning is to engage and express the grief. What I feel is the grief. What I can do and choose to do with it is to express it. So grief is not optional. We all are going to experience losses in our life. Mourning is optional, and I so encourage people to opt for it. Give it a voice. The other way that I think of it, David, is anytime something happens to us, but here we're focused on grief, but this has to do with a multitude of emotional experiences. Anytime anything happens to us like a major loss, we are infused with emotional input. It throws us into disequilibrium. It throws us off balance. The way we write the ship from the input is with output. 
we give our grief a voice. And that's what mourning is to give our grief a voice. We cry it out or we talk it out or we write it out for those who journal. And I'm a big fan of doing that. But to give it a voice is to balance that huge input with output. That is the healthy way to proceed with this. The way that people often do, because, and, and I have nothing but, but empathy and respect, they simply don't know the lay of the land. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book. They don't know the lay of the land of how to do that. And so they try to get away from their grief as quickly as they can. They repress it and repressed grief sooner or later, months, years later, so often becomes depression. I'm so grateful for the distinction that you made between grief and mourning, and we'll return to it later in the conversation. But as we're moving towards our first break, I want to linger for a moment on what you just said about grief and its root word gravis. And I'm aware that you do a similar etymological recovery in the quiet house with the word healing, connecting it to wholeness. And I wonder if you'd say a couple of words about that. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. If I repress my emotions, then I have just ended the process of healing. I'm not going to heal from it. I'm going to go forward with it, but it is going, if I shut off my emotions, it's, it, it's, think of it very basically as my emotions are all in this room we call our hearts. And if I close the door to it because I don't want to feel my pain, then I will close the door to my joy and I will close the door to my happiness. And therefore, I am going to be shutting off so much of the richness and fulfillment in my life back to healing. Healing is the opposite. Healing is to open it up and to give it a voice and to express it. And then that wound, instead of it continuing on repressed, that wound is going to heal. That is the only, back to your word wholeness that you were referring to. That's the only way that I can live out of complete authenticity and wholeness and out of all of who Ron is, David can live out of all of who David is. But only if we allow ourselves, we have the courage to get in touch with all that we feel and to express it. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Reverend Ronald J. Greer. He's the director of the Pastoral Counseling Service at Peachtree Road United Methodist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. He's been with this ministry for 40 years. He's an ordained United Methodist minister and the author of several books. Today we're talking about his most recent book, The Quiet House, Reflections on the Loss of a Spouse. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, 
thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find more than 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with the Reverend Ronald J. Greer. He's the director of the Pastoral Counseling Service at Peachtree Road United Methodist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. He's been with this ministry for 40 years. He's an ordained United Methodist minister and the author of several books. Today we're talking about his most recent book, The Quiet House, Reflections on the Loss of a Spouse. I want to return to the distinction that you made in our first segment about the difference between grief and mourning. And something that you mention in your book, The Quiet House, that really floored me was that in decades past, the purpose of mourning was oftentimes seen as being pointed towards getting the mourner past the memory of their lost loved one, past the need to even feel connected to them, and just to move on with their life almost as if that loved one no longer existed and never existed. And you're pushing us towards a very different idea of mourning, where you're not losing that loved one, but carrying that loved one with you into the good life that you are continuing to live. I wonder if you would meditate for a moment on that distinction. What was wrong with that old model of mourning, and why are you offering us, I I would dare say, a more hopeful, a more healthful model? Model of mourning in your book, The Quiet House. Oh, the old idea was to get over it. And to get over it lost so much. I was was married to within a few months of 50 years to this lady. And oh my word, just like so many listeners that you have. I was just blessed out of my mind with the joy and the richness of being married to her. The last thing I want to do is to get over that relationship, is to lose that relationship. Erin goes with me. I hear her voice. Let me, let, let me tell you a quick story, David. She was, it was near the end of her life, not at the very end, but with, it was probably a month to six weeks before the end of Karen's life. And Karen came downstairs. I was about to go into the to the church to my counseling office. And Karen, usually I had left by the time she, but she got up earlier that day. And she came downstairs. I got her tucked in on the sofa in the den and in under her blanket. And I got her a cup of tea. And she and I chatted for a moment. She was very tired. She was really feeling the effects, not only of the cancer, but of the treatments. And we finished chatting and I gave her a kiss. He said goodbye. And so I left, went out into the garage, and I was getting in the car. And to my surprise, she had gotten out, and she had opened the door from the house to the garage, and she was so fatigued, she was so tired, but she had the brightest smile on her face. And she says, as I'm getting in the car, she says with this brilliant smile, Ron, go be a ray of God's light. What? Now, is that inspiration to take with you to the office or what? That is the lady with whom I was blessed to live for 50 years. The last thing I want to do is to get over that relationship. The thing I want to do is to mourn the wound of my grief of losing that physical relationship 
as I then go forward and carry that relationship in my heart. One of the ways I think of that is that every morning, more or less for the last 50 years, I would say goodbye to Karen in the morning and to my family in the morning when my children were still children and would leave them through the day and would not see them until that evening. But they were with me throughout the day in my memory and certainly in my heart. So this is not getting over. Mourning is not getting over these relationships and leave them behind. Mourning is like when I would say goodbye in the morning for all those years. Mourning is simply taking them with me in a different way. That's what this whole business is about is to work through the feelings of grief the other morning. So then when, and I once heard it said that you're working through your grief successfully. When you think of your loved one and the first thought you have is of their life and not of their death, that's when I know I'm carrying her forward with me and I know that I am successfully working through my grief. One of the things that really struck me in reading your book, The Quiet House, and it really builds on what you're just saying here about taking your loved ones with you throughout the day, you build that layer upon layer. And I'd like to share with my listeners a little bit about how those layers stacked up for me. So you're talking about having your wife, Karen, with you throughout the day and your children with you throughout the day. And that's the presence of their presence. (laughs) if I can use that phrasing. But then you go on to say, when we lose a loved one, we have their absence. And then we have and we experience the presence of their absence. So you're carrying not only the thought of their living with you through the day, but now the thought of the loss of their living selves through the day, the presence of that absence. And so it was, that's three layers of what you're carrying with you. And maybe I'm making too much of this, but I don't think that I am. And I'd invite you to talk to us about the distinction between feeling someone's absence and feeling the presence of their absence. Help us to understand what you were doing there in that part of the book, The Quiet House. Absolutely. The way I experienced my mourning following her death is that first, of course, what hit me was her death. That was the loss of her physical presence in my life. And then I found that I transitioned fairly quickly into to then beginning to reflect on what she had been through as we were living those last few weeks, which were very, at times, painful for her. As we were living through those, we were not focused on how we felt right then emotionally. We were focused on making life as bearable for her as we could. And so later then, I started to mourn. First, I mourned her death, and that was mourning for me. Then I mourned her suffering, and that was mourning for her, empathetically mourning for her. I just so profoundly regretted that she had to go through that. And then as the weeks went on, I became aware that a separate loss from her death was what you quoted was the presence of her absence. Now, that, that is not a contradiction to her being with me in my heart. I'm talking about absence in a different way here. This is absence in her being physically absent. And 
hence the name of the book, The Quiet House, that the house suddenly became quiet because Karen was no longer here. And I needed to recognize the fact that her death is what, which is what I was mourning first, brought on then her absence. But that was a second and separate, distinctly separate loss was the ongoing absence that her death brought into my life. And then I began mourning all of the ways that as I would go through the rest of my life, she would no longer be there. And that is what I refer to as the presence of her absence, which was the third dimension of my grief. Now, having then engaged the hurt, having engaged the loss in those ways and having successfully, and of course, I'm still in the process of doing that over three years later, but having successfully engaged it and working it through as the healing has happened, then I am more and more aware of the presence of her life in my heart. But the presence of her absence is the physical presence of her absence. The presence of her in my heart is the emotional awareness of all that she meant to me and all she will always mean to me. So those are two different ways of, of viewing that she is absent physically. There's no denying that. And that's why I'm mourning. She is very present with me in my heart. She, we go forward together and we always will. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Ronald J. Greer. He's the director of the Pastoral Counseling Service at Peachtree Road United Methodist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. He's been in that ministry for 40 years. He's an ordained United Methodist minister and the author of several books. Today we're talking about his most recent book, The Quiet House, Reflections on the Loss of a Spouse. So, I'd like to linger for a moment with this idea of the presence of absence and offer a personal reflection to see if I've got the gist of what you're saying. So my mother passed away in 2009, not quite 15 years ago. She and I, longtime listeners will know that my mother and I did not have a healthy relationship. We had a very fraught relationship when I was a child. And so when I got married and I started having children of my own, the thought was, how would we interact with our children and my mother? And she passed right as my wife was pregnant with our first child. And so we suddenly had, we had these conversations about how we would negotiate that. And suddenly it became a kind of moot point. So that's the absence. In the nearly 15 years since, as our children have grown up, there have been moments where I have thought to myself, gosh, I wish that my mother had survived longer because she would have loved my children. Even with all of the strangeness of our own relationship, I can imagine a way in which she would have delighted, and I'm feeling it emotionally right now, even as I'm saying it, she would have had delight in the children that we are raising. And so when I'm saying it that way, is that in some way a concreteness of the presence of the absence that you're talking about? Or have I misunderstood your point and you'd push it in a different direction? You're spot on. You're spot on. Where I so resonate with you is that your mother could have had a second shot at this. And she probably would have eaten it up with those wonderful children. And that is the presence of her absence, that she died just as this new chapter 
was about to begin. And there is sadness that you so understandably feel from that. Yes, sir. Well, and let's continue with this because clearly you had a a beautiful relationship with your wife, Karen. And in the example that I've just given, not all of our relationships of loss are beautiful relationships. And so sometimes we may not feel the liberty to mourn, or we may feel very conflicted in our mourning. And as you said earlier, that when we repress the grief, it becomes depression. And so sometimes the grief can come out in odd ways. And let me give another personal example. As we're recording this, this morning, I got news that Shane McGowan, which was the lead singer of a rock and roll group that I enjoyed through the years, has passed away. And my one of my best friends also shares a love of Shane McGowan and his band, The Pogues. My, my best friend, Alex's wife, passed away a little over a year ago. I have had a journey of grief and mourning with him. But this morning, in hearing about the loss of Shane McGowan, I was talking to my wife about it, and I found myself coming to tears. And I realized I wasn't really mourning the loss of Shane McGowan. I was mourning the loss of Kathy, my friend Alex's wife. But this, the ways in which grief and mourning come out sometimes are not linear, I think is what I'm trying to suggest here. They come out at odd moments with odd triggers. And I'd like to ask you, as you have reflected deeply on this process, of grief and the activity of mourning, what do you think or what insight can you give into the ways that sometimes our mourning will come out in odd places or at odd times in unexpected ways? Oh, goodness. David, has anyone ever told you you ask great questions? Has that ever come up? <laughs> I'm very grateful for those kind words. Thank you. <laughs> Someone once said in a different context, and he was talking about listening to someone talk, and I'm talking about living life. Someone once said that it was like listening to an AM radio on scan. Living life is like listening to an AM radio on scan. We never know what station, what emotional station our heart is going to drop in on next. And any time I experience sadness. And let me go with the word sadness, but sometimes we would not put it, we would not elevate it to the level of what we might call grief. But anytime I experience sadness about something, I, I may hear at the end of one of network newscasts, they'll tend to have a more personal story at the end. And I'm aware that I, I'm often tearing up It's because it's personal and it's touching. And sometimes it's sad and sometimes it's just it, it would, they, they were just so compassionate. I'm tear up. I'm tearing up for a cluster of reasons. Anytime I feel the sadness, and you could not have said it better, Dave. Anytime I feel the sadness over here, it is going to connect to me with, and, and that will be genuine. That'll be authentic, but it's going to connect me with many losses. My grief is in that, that room together with all the rest of my losses, and they'll all be coming out. The thing that I need to do, and I want to make two, two comments to this, the thing that I need to do is to stay as in touch with my emotions as I possibly can. And in the moment of any of my losses, like you, you speak of your friend's wife, and that was important to you, I need to stay in touch with how do I want to give that a voice? And again, to cry it out, talk it out, to write it out, as I was talking about before, 
But how do I want to give, well, what is appropriate to this laws? How do I give it a voice? And the, the other facet of it that you were talking about, relationships are complex. And thank you for your vulnerability in sharing that about your mom, your relationship with your mom. Relationships are complex. And sometimes the grief gets plowed under the other emotions that we feel. And the other memories that we have may override the tender memories that are really the source of the grief. I need to get in touch with all of those, including the grief, and see if I can find a way of giving a voice to that as well. So I want to ask a strange question, because as I'm talking with you, I have this image coming to mind. And you mentioned that the sadness on one part of your life can connect to the grief that you're feeling about loss. The image that I had was the floor of a forest, a wild old growth forest where the roots are all overlapping one with another. And it really strikes me that when we talk about the wholeness, the healthiness that we were mentioning earlier, it really is like that wild overlapping of all these things, that, that our sadness here has to be connected to our grief there. We can't separate them because if we separate them, we've created something different. Maybe like the kind of forest you go by when it's been set up for like scientific purposes or for economic purposes where everything is in a row and nothing is undergrowth. But the wild undergrowth is the old forest, the one that has lasted for centuries. And so for us to be healthy, we have to allow ourselves to have this wild overgrowth of sadness over here connecting us to grief here. When I bring that image to you, does that feel right? Or would you offer a different image for thinking about how our grief is oddly connected to our sadness? That is spot on. It's all interconnected. It's all interwoven. If I am mourning Karen's death, then that is primarily what I have been mourning, but I'm also mourning the other losses in my life at the same time. But if, especially, and then in the last three years, I, like you were sharing about your friend and his loss, I have lost friends. And as I have done that, and as I have mourned those losses, I'm still mourning Karen's loss as well. I don't, this is where that whole idea, and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross profoundly regretted the way her thinking had been misinterpreted. This isn't linear. I'm all but quoting Elizabeth here. This isn't a linear process. This is the AM radio and scan. Our emotions pop up as as they pop up. It is not linear. And as I am mourning one loss, I'm mourning all of my losses. I'm not going to try to take it apart to understand because that's above my pay grade. I'm not able to do that. What I am able to do is to authentically feel what I feel and give it expression. And as I give it expression, then I am healing from the wounds of all of my losses at one time. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Ronald J. Greer. He's the director of the Pastoral Counseling Service at Peachtree Road United Methodist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. He's been in that ministry for 40 years. He's an ordained United Methodist minister and the author of several books. Today we're talking about his most recent book, The Quiet House, Reflections on the Loss of a Spouse. We'll be back in just a moment. 
Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find more than 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with the Reverend Ronald J. Greer. He's the director of the Pastoral Counseling Service at Peachtree Road United Methodist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. He's been with this ministry for 40 years and is an ordained United Methodist minister. He's the author of numerous books. Today we're talking about his most recent book, The Quiet House, Reflections on the Loss of a Spouse. Well, let's stay with this idea for a moment, the idea that somehow grief is something that we need to move through in a linear fashion. You have this step and this step. We've mentioned Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and the stages of dying, the stages of grief and reconciliation that have sometimes been misread. And I wonder if you would say some more about how that's not the healthiest way to think about this process. Why should we not think about this as a linear stair-step process? Elizabeth Cooper-Ross was consulting with a hospital one time, and as she was talking with the professional staff, they were having a Q&A, and Elizabeth Cooper-Ross was horrified. Of course, her book on grief and on death and dying had already come out. She was horrified to hear a nurse quote herself as telling a patient, you cannot go back to step Two, you are already at step three. And Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was mortified. Oh, my word. This is how my work by some is being used. It is not a linear process. She said it's not a linear process. But this is, and I say this not critically, I say this descriptively, And I actually, I say this with empathy because I understand the terror that people have of getting in touch with the depth of their pain. People are wanting to interpret it as a one, two, three, four, five, and I'm done. And that's where the whole spirit of what we're talking about is. It is not that way that I am very clear that Karen's life is going to be a blessing for me for the rest of my life. And Karen's death is going to be tender for the rest of my life. And as I continue to heal, her death will diminish in terms of its impact because I will be healing and her life is going to magnify in its impact as my memories go with me and I absolutely celebrate them all. But I'm very clear there's not going to be anything linear about it, and there are going to be no steps involved. Now, uh, David, of course, there are phases that I will go through. For for instance, for me, I initially was pure emotional chaos. May I tell you a quick story? Absolutely. It was about a week before Karen died, and she was still able to walk. She was still able to stand. We were in the kitchen. Karen was sitting at the breakfast table, I think having some tea, and I was standing leaning up against the counter. And we were talking, as periodically we we did, we were talking about her dying. And I just broke into tears and sobbed and sobbed. And sweet Karen slowly got up, walked over to me, 
and her arms were just so frail by then. She had lost so much weight. She wrapped those frail arms around me and she held me as long as I cried. And I don't know how long I cried, but however long it was, she held me. And then finally I finished and Karen stepped back and I looked in her eyes and that was when the obvious hit me. And I laughed and I said, isn't there something backward about this? Aren't I supposed to be comforting you? And I said to her, I am crying about your dying and you're comforting me. And we both laughed. No, there wasn't anything backward about it because Karen knew her time had come and she was ready to go home. I wasn't ready for her to leave. What Karen felt was peace. What I felt was grief. And that then, as I said, that was about a week before she died. That then really initiated my moving into this new phase of my own life of the morning. And then I have honored it by acknowledging and giving a voice to whatever emotion comes out next. Whatever I feel, I give it a voice. And that is what prompts the healing. If I don't, as we have said, the way I love the way this one lady said it, she said, I just figure when life gives you tribulations, the good Lord wants you to tribulate. And she said it far better than I have ever said it. But the way I put it is suppression brings depression. Expression brings emotional resurrection. So there's a lot there to think about and to unpack. But as I was listening to you telling this story about Karen shortly before her passing and the way that she held you as you were going through your grief and as you describe it, your pure emotional chaos, it made me think of another story that you tell in your book, The Quiet House. And that is a couple of months after your wife Karen has passed away. You're sitting, and I'm going to misremember some of the the details, and I apologize for that. Please feel free to correct me. But I I recall that you were sitting at either a lunch or a dinner with some friends, and they were describing having been abroad, and they were in a restaurant, and suddenly in the midst of the restaurant, these bagpipers come in and play a, a serenade, and your initial thought was, I have to take Karen there. And what I want to draw from this, both from this story about the bagpipers, but also the story about that moment in the morning when you were held by your wife who was dying as you were grieving, is that in grief, in mourning, the roles get reversed or get muddy, and time gets rearranged. As we're grieving, things don't line up linearly, and sometimes we find ourselves imagining that the lost loved one is right there with us in the midst of this experience, and then suddenly it comes back. That's from another time. So I want to ask you about the rearrangement of roles and the rearrangement of time in this process of mourning and grieving. How can we be gentle with ourselves as we find those slippages occurring? I have had countless people say to me, Over the years in my counseling office, after going through a major loss of a loved one, I just feel crazy. And I have said to virtually all of them, 
if you don't feel crazy right now, you are crazy. Because now is the time that you are living in two different worlds. And you said it so clearly. Neurologists describe it as the brain's preference of previous knowledge to new awareness. And they refer to it as implicit knowledge. The fact that our loved ones die does not mean that the way that is encoded and engraved in our minds, in our brains, suddenly disappears. It doesn't. I will not bore us with the lobes of the brain, but neurologically, let's just call it the subconscious and the conscious. My conscious mind is very aware of who is still alive and who has died. My subconscious, again, we're back to that brain's preference to previous knowledge. My subconscious back there has that clear awareness of who has always been there, and it is engraved back there. It takes time for that to be re-encoded, re-engraved. And you told the story very clearly. They were saying that they were out on the veranda of their hotel, and every afternoon at 6 o'clock, a bagpiper came out. Karen's maiden name was MacDonald, for heaven's sake. She was very Scottish. And I thought that two months after she died, as you said, I thought that whole thought, I had got to take care of there. Two months after she died, before the obvious hit me, my subconscious had it encoded back there that Karen was with me as she'd been the last 50 years. My conscious mind then kicked in. She's gone. So many times in those first few weeks, I would think, I've got to tell Karen this. Living in two different worlds, expect it, expect it. It's a part of the process. It takes our subconscious months to, if the relationship is that close, months to re-engrave. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Ronald J. Greer. He's the director of the Pastoral Counseling Service at Peachtree Road United Methodist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. He's the author of numerous books. Today we're talking about his most recent book, The Quiet House, Reflections on the Loss of a Spouse. So in reading your book, The Quiet House, I had a sense if I was to characterize it, I would say this is a very present book. It's a very earthly book. It's a book that is dealing with the immediacy of loss and the here and nowness of mourning. But I'm also aware that you are an ordained United Methodist minister. You have spent decades in ministry, and you used a phrase a moment ago in talking about that moment when your wife, Karen, before she passed away, embraced you as you were weeping, and you said she was ready to go home. And so I'm aware that the quiet house does not really linger on what comes next or what might be the hope for some sort of future reconnection with your lost love, Karen. But I wonder if you're willing, if you would help us to understand how your faith helps you think about the future, not just the future here on earth, but the way that you think about the future possibility cosmically, spiritually. And I don't know quite what question to ask here, but if you're willing, I would welcome you to talk with us about however you interpret the question that I may be asking and how you'd like to answer it. Absolutely. We were talking about the awareness 
of how our loved ones continue in our hearts and in our souls. And that to me is not just memory, but that her spirit is alive and well. And I think that spirit goes with me throughout each day. I continue to feel inspired by her. And again, some people think of that cognitively as I remember, like I remember any important lesson I have learned. And that's true. But I also think her spirit goes with me. I also absolutely believe that her spirit also is with God in a way that, as I phrased it before, she was ready to go home and she went home. But it's not like her spirit is either there or here. I feel it here as I know it is also in the presence of God. And when I think of resurrection, when I think of new life, I think of a new life that goes beyond physical death. And I also think of new life as I, earlier, I used the resurrection as an emotional resurrection. I think of new life for me. I think of me moving into a new chapter of my life as being a kind of resurrection as well. But back to the overtly spiritual dimension of this, to me, a part of the grounding that I feel is in the clarity and to me, the certainty that her spirit, that, that she was suffering here, and suddenly she wasn't suffering, not because her life was over, but because her life transitioned. And her life transitioned into, and it's above my pay grade to be able to describe what heaven is like, but I absolutely believe that it is there, and God is there, and God created it, and that's all I need to know. Oftentimes, when people go through the loss of a loved one, it profoundly shakes and reshapes their thought about heaven, their thought about God, their relationship with God. We even have a fancy word for this in theology. We call it theodicy, confronting suffering, the problem of evil, the problem of death. I wonder if you're willing to share, how has Karen's loss, the loss of your loved wife, Karen, and the grief and the mourning that you've been through in the wake of that over these past three years, has that shaken or reshaped or altered in some way the fundamental way that you think about your relationship with God? When I went through that transition was when my son died. Karen's death has not changed the reshaping that took place when my son Eric died 40 years ago. When he did, I did a major journey of thinking through what suffering, heartache, all of that is about. And I have come to terms with the fact that I'm reminded of a friend of mine who, again, this is the death of a two-year-old child who died in a car accident, our son. And a friend of mine came to visit me, a pastor friend of mine came to visit me, and just a delightful and wise person. And he said his comment on Eric's death was, he said, Greer, when I cross the Jordan, I'm going with questions. And one of the awarenesses that one of the clarities to, that I came to was that on this side of the Jordan, there were many things that I would not know. And why there is suffering is one of them. And I don't spend any time or energy trying to figure it out because I'm pretty clear 
as to what is above my pay grade. And that is one of them. What I do know is that God is with me every step of the way. And I do feel God's presence. Quick story. At the clinic where I did my training as a pastoral counselor, a group of us were talking and one had just been through a horrible experience. The details are not important. Horrible experience. And she was sharing with us about what she had been through. The last remark that she made as she was wrapping up the description, she said, and so I absolutely hit rock bottom. And there was a long silence. And then one of the therapists, one he happened to be a psychiatrist in, at the clinic, one of the therapists, after this long silence, said, well, isn't it good to know when you hit rock bottom that at the bottom, there's a rock? Wow. I gave some serious thought to that. And it, because of a person of faith, I thought of the psalmist, for he is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. So though I do not understand why there is suffering and heartache in this world, I am clear that as I go back to the conversation that Job had, that I'm clear that God is in charge and that God was there when the mountains were created. And I am clear that God is with me. And as I allow myself, and here I'm going to loop back to the, our idea of mourning, if I allow myself to sink and sink, and this takes some serious guts for all of us to sink into my grief via my mourning, if I allow myself to sink and sink, I arrive at a place that feels substantial and solid and grounded. And that to me, in the most positive sense, is rock bottom. And from that, may I keep going, Dave? Absolutely. From that here, I want to tie in another quote. I sink into my rock bottom. Then I go back to 2008. There was a speaker at the commencement address, giving the commencement address at Harvard University. She had years before been destitute. She was a single parent without a dime. She had no idea how she was going to keep them going. She was barely avoiding homelessness. And then fast forward several years, she's now giving the commencement address at Harvard University, 2008. And on that day, J.K. Rowling said, and so rock bottom became the solid foundation on which I have built the rest of my life. So, in my morning, I sink and sing, allowing myself to feel everything that I'm feeling, and I land on rock bottom. He is my rock. And then it is from that solid foundation we join JK in building the rest of our lives on that solid foundation of that rock. 
through most of our conversation, we've been talking about the person who is going through the process of grief, the person who's going through the process of mourning. I'm aware that you also spend some time in your book, The Quiet House, talking to those who are outside of that process, but journeying with the mourner, journeying with the person who is going through grief. And so as my last question to you, I want to ask what words you might have for those who may have a dear friend who has just experienced a loss. What would you recommend would be some things they could be doing to help to support those people that are going through grief and mourning and loss? I'm so glad you asked that. What I have often said to people is, if you don't know them well, send them a card. If you know them moderately well, take them anything from your favorite bakery. If you know them rather well, go by to see them and give them a hug. And if you know them very well, pull up a chair, ask them how they're doing, and then be very quiet and listen and listen. Grief, because it is something that is a journey that happens internally. Grief is one of the loneliest experiences that we can have. And to have people who are present makes absolutely all the difference in the world. For me to be present, empathetically present. Here, let me draw, let me draw a distinction between sympathy and empathy just to sharpen the focus. Sympathy and empathy, both of the root words obviously comes from pathos, which means suffering. So both have to do with suffering. The sim in sympathy means with. That is to be with someone in their suffering. And that's good. That's important. But it's not as deep as empathy. Whereas the sim means with, the M in empathy means in. So if I am sympathetic, I am with someone in their suffering. If I am empathetic, I am in their suffering with them. The key word of sympathy is presence. The key word in empathy is resonance. I not only am present, I am resonating with them. I am listening to them. The two things that are most important to remember when you are with someone who is suffering the suffering a major loss in their life is for them to feel heard and for them to feel understood. Many times I have had people say to me, because of what I do professionally, Ron, what do I say to someone? And I will tell them, it doesn't matter nearly so much what you say as who you are with them. If they're in the receiving line in the fellowship hall after the memorial service, they will not remember a single word of anything anyone said, but they will remember the faces and the embraces. That's what they will take with them. When I learned this was early in my ministry before I became a pastoral counselor, and I was pastor of churches for about eight years, just out of seminary. And I would be asked by someone in my church, perhaps they had a father, elderly father who had died, who either was between pastors or didn't have a church home. They would ask me, would I do the service? Well, of course I would. And I would tell them, you get together, all of your siblings and your mom, of course, 6.30 at your house tomorrow afternoon and have everyone bring a story that 
symbolizes what your father's life was like and husband was like and the adjectives that would best describe him. So they would come and I would would sit there with notepad in hand and would say, tell me your stories. And they would, we would talk for an hour and a half. They would tell me their stories later that evening. I would collect them for the meditation the next day. After the service, they would loop back to see me and they would give me the traditional attaboys. You did a good job on them. Yeah. That wasn't what they were really looping back to see me for. They were coming back to see me. And this is where I learned it, David. They were coming back to see me to thank me for listening to them. They said to give us the chance to tell our stories about daddy. That was transformative. That meant the world to us. That is the most important thing that anyone can do when their friend is going through a major loss and is going through the mourning of their lives. Well, Reverend Ronald J. Greer, I just want to acknowledge that it's a tremendous act of trust you have placed in me and in my listeners to talk so frankly about your own journey of grief and mourning, not only of your beloved wife, Karen, but also your young son, Eric. I want to acknowledge that and on behalf of my listeners, express my deepest sympathies and to the extent that I can, my empathy with what you have gone through and what you are going through. Thank you for taking the time to write your book, The Quiet House, but thank you especially for taking the time today to talk about it with me and my listeners. Thank you so much, David. It has been an honor to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. We've been speaking today with the Reverend Ronald J. Greer. He's the director of the Pastoral Counseling Service at Peachtree Road United Methodist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. He's been in that ministry for 40 years and is an ordained United Methodist minister. He's the author of several books. Today, we've been talking about his most recent book, The Quiet House, Reflections on the Loss of a Spouse. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.